You're listening to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast, where we read them so you don't have to. Like the show? Become a patron at patreon.com forward slash nygbc. You should write a book, Fry. People need to know about the can eat more. getting this book on UFOs. Did you know they're real? But there's a huge comic conspiracy to cover it up. Oh, that's just a paranoid fantasy. I want to be a book that you can pick me up, flip through my pages, make sure nobody drew wieners in me. Welcome to the Not Your Grandmother's Book Club Podcast, where we read them so you don't have to, because our brothers never told us to stop hitting ourselves. My name is Kevin. I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Benedict Wanker, magazine's most eligible bachelor of 2013. Benedict, how are you today? I'm doing well, Kevin. Thank you. How are you? Do you like that I finally dropped? I finally asked after so many episodes how you're doing. I do, yeah. Normally it's like, what kind of cheese is the most cultured? Like, what? <laughs> sure, like, I never have a chance. How are you? It almost caught me off guard with its simplicity. <laughs> I'm doing just fine. And we also have a very special guest with us today, uh, Clint Haycock uh, of the Mind Shift podcast, former pastor and Bible... Is it Bible College? Is that what they're called? That's I'm not sure true. 100%. Yep. Bible college. Bible college professor. Clint, thanks for coming on with us today. Yeah, great to be here. Is, is that different to a seminary, just, just out of interest? Yeah, um, it was undergraduate level. Gotcha, gotcha. So seminary, you'd be doing higher ed, masters, and all that kind of thing. Got it, got it, got it. Excellent, okay. excellent. Well, we brought you on today because this is the first chapter of the book that we're doing where we finally get to Christianity. Because it makes sense that Ben can't write this whole book about Western civilization and never talk about the thing that all of his readers really love and want him to talk about, which is how great Christianity is. Uh, and so we thought it'd be best to have uh, an expert of sorts on <laughs> to help us out with that, uh, as Benedict and I have uh, long, long ago left uh, left Christianity, uh, and uh, you know both were part of more, I think, more moderate religions. Right? I I grew up Catholic. Benedict was Church of England, um, but. We know Ben Shapiro's audience is largely evangelical Christians in the United States, which uh, is far more uh, your bailiwick than Excuse ours. Excuse me, just mm. a, a quick thing there. Are you telling me that the Church of England, which has basically said that <laughs> hell doesn't exist, is not a serious Christian religion? What are you trying to tell I'm me? Shocked. That's exactly what I'm saying. <laughs> He's calling that the mild version of Christianity? I don't know what to tell you. I'm sorry. <laughs> But uh, before we get, uh, Clint, why don't you give us a little, uh, you know, a little more background on yourself for the listeners? Okay, so yeah, I'm glad to be here. Uh, I was an evangelical pastor and Bible college teacher of about 20 years or so. I spent most of my adult life either in education, academics, or as a minister or a teacher. And I've walked away from Christianity altogether about 10 or 11 years ago. And I've been sort of deconstructing and reconstructing, I guess, ever since. And that's why I do my podcast, which deals a lot of, I've done a lot of stuff on like cult psychology and the last year or so I've been really focusing on, I guess you could say the Christian right. Mm. It's like dominion theology, what's going on in the Trump world right now with all the evangelical Christian support, very concerning. And so I've been devoting a lot of attention to that right now. Excellent. Excellent. Well, we're glad to have you on with us today. And with that out of the way, why don't we return to our book review of The Right Side of History by Ben Shapiro, the dollar store American psycho. Benedict, <laughs> what did we read this week? Well, Kevin, this week we read chapter four coming together in which two completely things that do not go together at all are somehow smushed into a single thing unsuccessfully. Excellent. Do you have an alternate chapter title for us this week? <laughs> I do. It's this bullshit again? Question mark. <laughs> <laughs> Not again. Yeah. <laughs> Not again. No, we get that. So it, it is similar, right, to A, every other chapter of this book so far. But we basically have gotten in every single book that we've read so far something along these lines, something similar um, yeah. to what the argument he's sort of building in this chapter about Christianity being 
the force that brings everything together. Yeah, it's mm. like if you, if you take all the good bits of the things I just described and pretend the bad bits don't exist and then pretend that that's what Christianity is, then you're in a good place. Like, it's very weird. Yeah. And my alternate chapter title for this week is is very simple. It's just, hey, Christians, buy my book, please. <laughs> <laughs> Need money, Pretty buy my simple. book. That's it. <laughs> yeah. We, we were talking about My this. My wife's a bad doctor. She's proven well, that. I need more money. We were talking about this earlier. He has written so many books. I can't imagine it. Like, has he? Yeah, it's really like one a year. Like He really churns them out, including novels, mm. which is certainly something. Oh, he's, he's done three in the last yeah. year. Wow. Three books in the last year. It's incredible. He yeah. put Stephen King to shame, huh? It, well, not, not really. <laughs> okay. <laughs> in ter- in as far ter- as volume, he does. Yeah, as far as volume, certainly, but not, not yeah. quality of writing. Word count. Yeah, <laughs> pure word count yeah so we start off this chapter learning like we mentioned at the end of the last chapter we did that this is going to be where he brings together jerusalem and athens as he Mm -hmm. says and combines them and the force that brings them together in his mind is christianity so he starts us off in the early roman empire talking about how 10 percent of the roman empire was jewish by the end of the first century ce and that the two building blocks of western civilization judaic revelation and greek reasoning we're at war. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it's. Uh, I I don't know how you feel about this, Clint, but it's. Uh, it, it seems a, a little off to me. I don't know. The, the The Romans were so reverent of of Greek culture, um, mm-hmm. that, and then just to be like, oh, and Judaic revelation and Greek reasoning were at war. I don't necessarily think that they were. I think that the 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 provinces provinces rather of Judea did not like being under Roman control, but I don't think That's that they true, were yeah. specifically <laughs> like at war with the Greek culture. I don't know. I don't know if you have a take on that. I think that's true. I mean, you, the, that's where the chapter kind of starts, isn't it? He sets up this dichotomy whereby you have Jerusalem and Athens, as it were, these two competing worldviews. I guess you have Revelation on the one hand, the Judaic sort of Judea Judaism. And then you have the Greek sort of philosophy, humanistic reason, and he says they're incompatible. And yeah, going into the Roman Empire, that's where the, a lot of the problems started because Christianity became the state religion of Rome, and they were able to sort of mer- merge those two worldviews together in Christianity, and that's where it just exploded. And that's what, that's what he gives the credit for it, is they were able to merge Greek philosophy and revela- divine revelation together. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, also, I just want to point out what both of you overlooked, which is that obviously the Judean People's Front and the People's Front of Judea <laughs> sparked most of this stuff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so the mass mass demonstrations in front of Jesus on the hill, certainly, and Brian, of course. <laughs> yes, Brian. Yeah. Uh, so he lays out a couple of things here where he says well, shows this this difference it, between Greek. It's and also Roman just and, b- and before Jewish you get thought. into this, Kevin. It's just like that kind of bad writing. The second paragraph is it was at best highly unclear whether constant could be successfully attempted okay like mm. first of all yeah unclear unclear to whom <laughs> second of all who would like are we trying to accept do consonants like is that a thing that people wanted to do or is that just a thing that we are retroactively looking at history and going this is a thing that did happen and therefore people must have been trying it for a while it just makes no sense as writing well i, th- I would say he he uses the quote from tertullian and that's a critical one. It's been around, obviously, it's, it's been a, a highly touted quote, this quote about what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? What does the church have to do with the academy? That's the dichotomy that he's kind of riffing mm-hmm. on, isn't it? And saying, well, re- divine revelation on the one hand versus human reason, they are incompatible. And that's that's kind of how he starts the dichotomy off by saying, well, the, we got to look at the Ju- Judaic roots of the whole thing because they believed in divine revelation. They just accepted that there was a God and everything else. Whereas the Greeks, they got there through human reason and philosophy and the two are somehow incompatible. Yeah, exactly. And that's, that's been, I know you haven't read the earlier chapters of the book. That's been sort of what he's been setting up for a while now. He has, and you probably noticed throughout this thing, he keeps going back to this fourfold framework of his about Mm -hmm. individual capacity and all that. That's sort of his out of nowhere, pulled out of his ass uh, framework for happiness. Uh, which he's trying to pigeonhole the entirety of this book into for absolutely no reason. <laughs> I, I would think I was thinking when I read the chapter, I went and did a lot of research on Shapiro in this book after I read the chapter, but I immediately thought that it reminds me of. Have you guys heard of David Barton? He's a Christian. Oh yeah, yeah. So he's a Christian <laughs> nationalist, um, and he's a quote-unquote historian, 
And mm-hmm. it reminded me a lot of what Barton tries to do, where the, the danger of Shapiro's work, as I read it, was it sounds very plausible. It sounds he's got a lot of quotes. Mm-hmm. He's got a lot of citations. He makes sweeping views, sweeping claims. Um, and it seems very scholarly. But when you really sort of drill down into his epistemological basis and his argument, that's where the flaws start to come across. But to the person who just reads it sort of at a surface level, it sounds really good. And it's like, yeah, the West is in decline and we need to return to Judeo-Christian values. Yeah, that's right. Damn right, you know? <laughs> oh, and I got to say, at least uh, as you brought it up, right, Ben Shapiro, this is the best writing we've read because we've done Dinesh D'Souza, we've done Greg Jarrett, we've done a bunch of other people. Mm. This is unquestionably the best, closest to academic writing that we've right. come across because at least he does citations. They're yeah. good That's citations. A lot of citations. It's not a whole lot of Breitbart articles and stuff. Yeah. It's a lot better than every other book we've ever read, but it is deeply flawed at his core, especially when you consider basically what he means every time he says Western is white people. Right. Uh, yeah. Yeah. That's the problem. So, it is. And, and look, yeah. you, you mentioned quotes. Like, there's stuff in here, like, that from, from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, which just uncritically quotes him as saying, The God of history was the God of Abraham. Like, okay, according to who? Right. Like, one guy. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, yes, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs is an important voice in this, but you can't just throw that out there as a quote yeah. and be like, you know, we're not going to challenge that because it supports no my nuance thesis. In it. Yeah, exactly. Well, a lot it's of the this argument stuff... from magnanimous quotation. Yeah, yeah. And that's why I say it's, it's, is not disingenuous, but it is kind of dangerous in that sense that uh, if you don't really know the foundation and the real history behind what he's talking about, you could easily just accept his argument because it sounds so scholarly and he makes a lot of sort of A to B statements. This is the problem. This is the solution. A to B straight line from past to present. And you think, okay, that cannot be that linear. It cannot be that straight. And, and we can't just assume that's the case. Yeah. Yeah, and it, he he does treat his own writing somewhat as revelation, right? It's it's what I've noticed. <laughs> yeah. He just he says things and like, and it was assumed to be true. Like we get off to the the, the birth of Christianity <laughs> because the birth of Christianity represented the first serious attempt to merge Jewish thought with Greek thought. Did it? I I'm utterly uncertain that that is true. Like there there is no <laughs> citation there. Yeah, where does that come from? Right. I mean, I'm sure there are people who have said that. He doesn't provide us a good citation of that. And A, even if someone had said it, that doesn't make it true. Well, uh, yeah, but- I was going to say, if, if you look at the context, historical context, okay, most of the New Testament was written by Paul, mm. and he himself was raised, he was a Jew, but he was raised kind of in a Greek Hellenistic context. Mm-hmm. So that was part and parcel of his own worldview. You know, He spoke Greek, he was raised and educated, we think, in probably a Greek as well as a Jewish school. In Tarsus, this is the history of, I guess, you know, Saul was he was his original name. So a mm. lot of the New Testament does have that Hellenistic sort of flavor to it. But that was just his worldview. It, it was guys like Aquinas who really tried to make Aristotelian uh, logic part of Christian theology. You know, so you could say that was probably a definite merger of Greek philosophy and Christian theology. But it was it was centuries later. Yeah. Yeah, and we'll definitely get to that in later yeah. parts of this chapter. He, he he spends a lot of time talking about that. Mm-hmm. But to dive off into this chapter, we get to this, this fir- and actually slightly before this first subsection we get to, which is called The Birth of Christianity, he has a paragraph where he says, quote, These questions would drive philosophy and religion for the next 13 centuries, transform the philosophy and history of the European continent, and provide the next layer of foundational ideas in the building of modernity. And the ideas that he's talking, the question rather, that he's talking about there, is whether the two traditions can be brought together. And the thing I think I wanted to bring up that also goes to the whole Aquinas thing is that we're looking at this later. And this is the same thing that Aquinas Mm. had, looking at things later, long after they Mm. had happened, and then ascribing that this is combining the two things rather than, as I think happened, Aquinas and those who tried to bring Greek thought into Christianity, seeing that there was this really great stuff. If we can just find a way to pull this great stuff in, this makes us seem so much smarter. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. He was trying to work out. He was trying to work out a comprehensive system. At least Aquinas was. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Paul, I think, was well. There's a lot of new. There's a lot of issues there. You know, did Paul write all the letters of the New Testament? Some people think some of them are forgeries. There's a lot of issues in that, which I'm sure we don't want to get into <laughs> the weeds there. But yeah. <laughs> you know, we can't just say, "Oh, Paul wrote most of the New Testament." There's there's a lot of scholarly debate around that issue too. 
Yeah. So we start off this subsection about the birth of Christianity, talking about how Christianity universalized the message, message of Judaism. And he says that's because Jesus' story was meant to extend to the entire world. Hmm. He follows that up with, quote, The Judaic notion of God so focused on law and the Jewish people as God's torch burning in the darkness through fulfillment of that law was turned aside. Instead, Jesus became all. I, I would just say, like, I, I said that this would happen, that he would be like, well, you know, the New Testament was written in Greek, so really they were trying this all along. I absolutely <laughs> predicted yeah. that that was going to happen. So, yeah. You knew it was going to happen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, do you, do you have any explanation for that, Clint? You probably know better than us why it was, was all written in Greek. Was it literally, is it just because that's where it actually originated and was written down? Well, that, as I was saying before, it's more, I think, to do with the influence of Alexander the Great because he Hellenized so much of the Mediterranean world. Uh, and so therefore Greek kind of became the, the lingua franca mm. of the day. It was the, the kind of language that intellectual spoke And it. If you spoke Greek, you could almost go anywhere in that world at that time and converse with people, no matter what, you know, local dialect they spoke. So I do think there's something to that, that they thought maybe, well, if we wrote it in Greek, cause they, they spoke Aramaic probably more than Greek. Mm. Uh, certainly Jesus did. So why this and this is another issue. There's another problem. <laughs> why were the Gospels written in Greek when Jesus and his disciples probably spoke Aramaic? So there's a translational issue yeah. right off the bat. But I think they were trying to make it more universal to a to a wider audience in in that sense. But it is propaganda if yeah. you look at it cynically. They're <laughs> trying to push the claim that Jesus was the Messiah and and all the rest of it, and that Christianity is all true. Yeah. Well, also, I mean, the the Gospels, even the first Gospels, were written. 60 years after jesus probably right yeah. 60 to 80 years is that right. if i got my, paul wrote, my numbers right yeah. there? they were written after paul wrote most of his epistles if he did indeed write them yeah so the gospels came after paul's letters mm. which a lot of people uh, take the make the mistake that because the new testaments chronologically they start with the gospels then they go to paul's letters they think oh well the gospels were written first and then Paul's letters were written afterwards, but that's actually not the case. Mm. And am I right? Mark was written first, right? That's what current thinking is. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Most people, most scholars think Mark was written first and the others copied or were influenced heavily by Mark. And that's a whole nother yeah. discussion yeah, you know, yeah. about the <laughs> synoptic gospel. If you want more on that, you can pick up whatever Bart Ehrman's. Oh, yeah, Bart, Bart exactly. Ehrman's good on this. That's, that's where I got it from. Anyway. Yeah. No, Bart Ehrman's fantastic. Yeah. I love it. He's just an entertainer. But I mean, it, it, interesting on the propaganda yeah. thing, because like, you know, like if people are writing this legitimately after the fact, like the Jews have already rejected Jesus at this point. So it's a bit stupid mm -hmm. to write it in Aramaic when that's like a rejected narrative amongst the Jewish right. people. So if you're going to claim like this is the Messiah, and people need to know about it it makes sense to write it in greek because yeah. who's like, your audience exactly. that's the question yeah. exactly it's a greek it's written for a greek audience or a greek speaking audience at least yeah and speaking of propaganda <laughs> uh one of the questions i wanted to ask clint and because obviously right me catholic benedict church of england one of the th things i've been trying to pick up through this book is when ben deliberately panders to his mostly evangelical audience <laughs> and which is where i picked up on the bottom of one of these pages here quote uh, Christianity's focus on grace rather than works makes it a far more accessible religion than Judaism in a practical sense. And that just stuck out to me hmm. as something deliberately aimed at evangelicals, knowing that, you know, growing up Catholic, works is also a huge component for Catholics. Yeah, I think that's true, though. I mean, I, I, I thought the same thing when I read that quote. I thought, hmm, that, that really jumped out at me, too. And in a way, though, I kind of agree with them, though, because Christianity is a lot more universal than Judaism. If you want to be a, a follower of Judaism, it's a lot of work, isn't it? You got to keep all these laws and there's all this stuff added to it. Whereas Christianity is, as historically, we can see that it's, it's grown massively bigger than Judaism ever, ever has been. So he moves on here at this point in the chapter, and he starts talking about the dilemma or the difference between the polis and the individual, mm -hmm. right? Because we know Ben's... Ben Shapiro's not me. I, I know this I is know, a problem every time we do this. I keep so I keep saying it as if it's you. Ben Shapiro, being a right wing uh, political figure, has to always put this focus on individualism as though that's a huge component of all these things to begin with. And I know there's plenty of argument about right the, the constant uh, uh, Twitter uh, wars of Jesus would have been a socialist mm. uh, and all that that's stuff true, that goes on. <laughs> <laughs> but. He moves on here and he starts talking about how 
Judaism had posited that the Messiah would be a political figure, not primarily a spiritual one. And that very idea put Judaism inherently in conflict with any powerful material empire. And again, that's an area where this sticks out to me a lot, given our current political times. Do we believe mm. that Jesus was not a political figure? Because that seems to be the argument here. Mm. I, I, I think it's probably a fair argument to say Jesus... If you read if you read Jesus out of context or out of context of the interpretation of him, you could see a lot of his actions as being political actions if they were narrativized in that way, if you see what I mean. Like if they were told mm -hmm. with a slightly different spin, then you could yeah. absolutely well, see Jesus' actions as political. Yeah. Well, I'm of the opinion that religion is inherently political. Yeah. If you're positing mm -hmm. that you have a system that prescribes all the moral duties for mankind then that's an inherently political system. That's one that you're saying our rulers need to live by, our laws need to be made by, we need to be governed by. Exactly. So I don't think there is a difference. That That's why I've been talking so much about dominion theology, because essentially what you just articulated, that's really the vision of what, well, right now, the Christian right's trying to institute in America, and they have been for decades now. They're saying, we believe this is the best way for all of society to live and we're going to subject everybody to our particular interpretation of the Bible and God's law because it's the best way to go, you know? And I'm thinking, whoa, <laughs> I, I don't want to be a part of a theocracy. I do not want to live in a theocracy, you know? So that's that's where I would go with it. Yeah. And he does, moving on in this chapter, he, one thing that I also loved was, tying into that, he gets into some sort of implied shitting on the Catholic Church, <laughs> uh, where, where he very clearly talks about how the Church, being that it was the Catholic Church at the time, basically the only one, uh, he says, quote, In reality, of course, the, the Church would quickly centralize temporal as well as spiritual power, and that's far from the only time when he brings up the Catholic Church uh, uh, using their power throughout the decades and centuries. He says later, quote, Defenders of August Augustine said this was less doctrinal than an emergency defense. Talking about Augustine's defense of um, of compulsion, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, uh, was less doctrinal than an emergency defense. Either way, the Catholic Church would not shy away from the arrogation of power over the course of coming centuries. <laughs> I will mm. never get over, as someone who was not raised in this way, the the differentiation that Americans make between Christianity and Catholicism. Because in, <laughs> it, it, in everything I learned, like, Christianity is Catholicism. Like, Catholicism is Christianity, rather, which then branched off into Protestantism mm -hmm. through Martin Luther's theses, mm -hmm. blah, blah, blah. But, like, the, the way that Americans are just like, oh, there's Christians and then there's Catholics. Those are different things. Like, what? That, yeah. The cognitive dissonance there the, is really... The I great struggle. American pastime is not baseball. It's shitting on Catholics. That's yeah. the great American Did, pastime, So I, I was actually talking about this over the weekend. Did anti-Catholic hate come before, like, anti-Irish and anti-Italian hate? Or did... Did the hatred of the immigrants drive the anti-Catholic hate? Which which came mm. first? Do you guys know? I, I think it, really I don't, don't yeah. know the answer to that. I think it's an outgrowth of the Re Reformation. I would say. Yeah, I would imagine. You so. know, because as you say, up to, up to about fifteen hundred, Catholic Church was the only game in town in the West. Anyway, you had the Eastern Orthodox Church, but they weren't nearly as influential, certainly, as the Catholic Church. So after the Reformation, there was a lot of infighting between the protestants and the catholics mm. and i think that's that's the root of where a lot of the even now a lot of the animosity between the two traditions comes from so you think it's just like the puritans came over while the reformation was happening and they just stuck with we hate the catholics and never evolved from there that's like <laughs> well yeah i mean look at european history i mean it was the wars between the wars of religion you know here in the uk we had all these you know spanish armada they were sent out by the king of spain to unthrone Elizabeth, that he was a Protestant ruler. And that was all theologically driven, you know, because Spain was a Catholic country. So there's been, you know, hundreds and hundreds of years of hatred yeah, yeah. between the two religions, Protestantism and Catholicism. No, not to mention Mary and Elizabeth having a back and forth and oh, the, yeah. the Houses of Parliament getting blown and <laughs> nearly getting blown up over over Catholic versus Protestant. Yeah, there's a yeah. lot there. Well, going back, yeah, Henry VIII, I mean... He split from the Church of Rome, not because of theological reasons, but because he wanted a divorce and the Pope wouldn't allow it. So he just went Honestly. and fo formed <laughs> his own church. He formed the Anglican Church, yeah. and that wasn't for theological reasons. So the Pope was very upset to lose England. You know, that yeah, was a Yeah, no, it's because he was horny, and, and, horny you know, and needed money. That's why that's <laughs> right. essentially Henry VIII's governing doctrine. Yep, I need a kid. Uh. Yep, amazing. <laughs> 
So we move on, and I, I, I do got to say, just as a subnote to that, right, growing up and having, I think, I don't know, 12 years of Catholic school, however many years of Catholic school I had, and all of my non-Catholic friends always saying, but you're not a Christian. That uh, <laughs> that still annoys me to this day when when uh, Protestants think Catholics aren't Christians. It's just, here's the test for being a Christian. We've talked about this before on the show. Do you believe in Jesus Christ as a Lord and Savior? Hmm. If yes, then Christian. <laughs> that, that's Paul's test. Whatever label you have. St. Paul, that's literally what St. Paul would agree with yeah. that as a test <laughs> i hate to break it to american christians but mormons technically are too oh, no. yeah uh so we move on to the next subsection in this chapter called the victory of christianity and this is where he talks about how christianity spread uh so far and so wide and immediately at the beginning of this subsection there was a quote that i had to look up and of course i knew he was misrepresenting uh he has a quote by the emperor julian mm. uh which as he writes it down reads quote uh, he spoke, it's a, it's a chopped up quote, so I have to sort of read the whole paragraph, but he says, quote, uh, Emperor Julian, a committed opponent of the church, spoke of pagan shortcomings when compared with the moral character, even if pretended, that's in quotes, of the Christians, including their, in quotes, benevolence towards strangers and care of the graves of the dead. And so when I looked that quote up, the one thing I noticed immediately was almost all the Christian websites that were parodying that quote were leaving off the beginning and the end of that quote. Almost all of them. Uh, the full quote, as it reads, is, quote, Why do we not observe that it is their benevolence to strangers, their care for the graves of the dead, and the pretended holiness of their lives that have done the most to increase atheism? <laughs> That's the full quote in his context. And of course, you can see why they would want to chop yeah. that up a little bit. I, I also like the bit where he's like, oh, there were about a thousand Christians in the year 40. By the year 300, there were some six yeah. million. And he was like, this was an immediate and far-reaching success. Like, that's hardly <laughs> immediate. Yeah, just exploded. Yeah. But you got to keep in mind, too, that the from the Roman point of view, Christians were atheists. They were heretics because they didn't believe in the uh, official gods of Rome. So they called them atheists. They called them heretics. And what he means, I think, what he means there is that they didn't, you know, believe in the gods of Rome. So from their religious point of view, they were heretics and That's atheists. True. Right. So yeah, it's an interesting take, isn't it? Right. And of course, there's the important connection between the Roman emperors and the pantheon, and of course that the Romans had godlike, the Roman emperors had godlike status, sure. and it was all about subservience to the empire and things like that, and Christians' refusal to to uh serve yeah the emperor as they i were i also to. like you know there's there's little mention of like the violence of of early, of the expansion of early christianity as well as later christianity mm. which i'm sure we'll get to later in the book or not get to because ben shapiro won't mention that aspect of evangelism um but yeah the, the, you know like the the fact that they basically refuse to be accepted by the empire as you say you know it, Again, like if we fast forward to now and Ben Shapiro's take on like similar actions done by people now, I can't imagine he would be as generous with his interpretation of <laughs> uh, of that. You know, if someone was refusing to to accept American hegemony, I can't imagine that he would be like, "Oh, maybe we should listen to these guys." <laughs> <laughs> Those Christians just failed to assimilate. Yeah, that was exactly, the problem. Exactly. Exactly. And and I mean that's the problem with the book, isn't it? Is that he does get some things right. You know, it's true that Christianity was violently persecuted in the first few centuries of, of the Roman Empire when they, after Jesus, you know, and all the, all the events of the Gospels, they were persecuted vi viciously. And a lot of them were martyrs and all the rest of it, because, as you say, they didn't bend the knee to the emperors of Rome and, and Roman religion. So that's true. And they were actually, there's a lot of quotes from Roman sort of apologists saying, well, we don't agree with Christianity, but we have to respect it mm -hmm. because they're so well loved and so well respected and they take care of their families and their friends. And, you know, so we, we grudgingly respect it. So it had that sort of going for it. Yeah. It really sounds like that taking care of the graves of the dead thing was great PR for early yeah. Christianity. Yeah. I actually found entire uh, scholarly articles about early uh, grave keeping of the dead that were referencing Christianity and uh, their keeping of the graves as a, a means why it spread. So there's some truth behind that. Sure. There definitely is. And that's what makes the book, I think, so dangerous is he does get some things right. And it's not mm -hmm. it's not untrue that Christianity was heavily persecuted and, and that it became the state religion of Rome and, and everything changed at that point. He's, he's broadly right, obviously, historically on that front. So we got to be really careful about picking this thing apart, I think. Yeah. 
Well, I mean, to, to that point, I mean, there are things that he just gets wrong. For example, he says then mm. there was the fact that Christianity was the only religion actively seeking converts. What a ridiculous thing to <laughs> <Really>? say. <laughs> yeah, as, as if Mithras and Zoroastrianism, like maybe it was the only Abrahamic religion actively seeking converts. There were so yeah. many religions, many of which have died out because Christianity took over and won the argument. But yep. it's not that they weren't seeking converts. Are you kidding? Judaism maybe wasn't seeking converts, but the Mith- Mithraism, which was the bull cult mm-hmm. of the Roman soldiers, definitely was seeking converts. Yeah, yeah, and just the, the entire Roman religion, the, the general pantheon of Rome, was built in a way that they could absorb other cultures and their gods into their yeah, pantheon. Yeah, he's, 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 he's talking about just, a very specific yeah. type of convert. Right. Like, I renounce all other religions exactly. to join this religion. Like Exactly. Yeah. And we know, yeah, Rome. The Romans they basically uh, took over the Greek pantheon and just renamed the gods. Exactly. Yeah, they didn't didn't even try and assimilate their own gods into it. They were like, "We'll just take (laughs) these ones." It seems like a lot of work to come up with a whole religious system, so we'll just rename that one's hard to pronounce. Aphrodite. Who knows? We'll call her Venus. It'll be fine. (laughs) Just change the names. That Virgil, though. That Virgil, though. You know, dude could write. He fast forwards right through the persecution. I mean, literally, it's a paragraph. Oh, straight up to the Nicene Creed. Like, not even talking about Straight yeah. up, straight up, early persecution, boom, Nicene Creed. Goes right through that history in less than a page, <laughs> and boom, we're at the fall of Rome. Yeah, just we're that just fast. all the way nothing, there. Also, by the way, nothing about how momentous Emperor Constantine converting was for the spread of Christianity as a whole. Yeah. Not like that, that wasn't was a huge. hugely important event in why Christianity ended up spreading beyond the region. And then we're going to fast forward the fuck out of this again all the way to the Dark Ages. Straight from the fall of Rome to the early uh, uh, night, what is he, uh, 12th century. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, we go straight through. And again, this is an area where, as Clint points out, we have to be careful because he is correct yeah. that many historians these days don't use the word Dark Ages. Mm-hmm. Because there was a lot of activity going on in places. It just wasn't all as well uh, documented as the times You know why? The because of after. Uh, Islamic Spain, a lot of it, <laughs> driving the intellectual mm-hmm. conversation, which again, he neglects to mention. Right. And the but fact the, that... But the way he... F- oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, ironically, yeah, speaking of Spain, there was a lot of Jews and Christians living in southern Spain at the same time, wasn't there? Yeah. That was another piece of irony. And then they kicked them all out. Yeah, they did. <laughs> they did do that. Yeah. <laughs> was... But he says about this time in history, quote, popular history maintains that this period represented the Dark Ages, but that's simply inaccurate. Progress continued as Christianity spread. And that's where he's trying to slip in that idea into your mind that it spread. Progress continued because. Yeah, you could equally, as I say, swap out Islam there Mm. with with Ibn Khaldun and, and all the, you know, Islamic philosophers, scientists, mathematicians that came to Europe because of the Islamic conquest. I, there's a, I think certainly, a, in my opinion, a stronger argument for progress continuing as Islam spread than Christianity during mm-hmm. this period. That's certainly ironic. scientific yeah. pro- progress, at least. Maybe not for the well, Even uh, under his own, own, what he's talked about in this book, what he's going to talk about when we get to St. Augustine, right? He wouldn't have had the works of Aristotle if it wasn't for the Muslims who exactly. preserved them. Mm-hmm. Well, and I would say one point he does get right, I agree with him, and that is that when the... Uh, Western Roman Empire collapsed, it was the Catholic Church that sort of jumped into the void there. And he does mention that in the chapter, you know, that the Pope kind of became a de facto emperor of, of the what used to be the state of Rome yeah. in Italy. And that's mm-hmm. what led to them being so incredibly wealthy and powerful into the early medieval ages because they had all these tithes flowing in and every king had to be basically subservient to the Pope. Uh, and so they became incredibly powerful and wealthy during that so-called Dark Ages period. And he's going to talk a little bit here about this Dark Ages period. And what he's going to suggest, again, he's going to talk about how in, in contrast to that Dark Ages moniker that's used oftentimes to refer to it, the culture was, in fact, flourishing under that time. Mm. Uh, there was there was one little line where he said, and I had to pick up on this, where he says, quote, Augustine himself, despite his distaste for paganism, suggested that the liberal arts education could be hijacked for service to God. Augustine likened such cultural appropriation <laughs> to the Jews taking Egyptian gold during the biblical exodus. I can't help but pick up when Ben says stuff like that. I can't help it. <laughs> Not but, much to so do So he's going to talk a little bit. Yeah, he's going to talk a little bit here about some of these things he says were still flourishing even under these supposed dark ages. Um, mm-hmm. And one of his... 
Yeah, I hear Benedict sighing. He says, quote, and Benedict's going to be angry here because Benedict, Benedict, with all of his studies, this is his area. And I know he's angry. And I knew when I read this. When I read this, I wrote in the margin, Ben's going to be so mad. Everything's going to wind him up. It's all underlined. <laughs> Where he says, quote, while many historians tout the power of Islamic oh civilization God. during this time period, and Islamic civilization did thrive on the Arabian Peninsula particularly, when Islamic civilization came un- up against Western civilizations at the Battle of Tours, Islamic forces were soundly defeated. Okay. Mm. Here's, <laughs> Here we go. Here's what actually <laughs> happened, okay? The, the, the Moors, who were the, the invading force, were led by uh, a guy called Tariq, who... Gibraltar is named after. Gibraltar means the rock of Tariq, the rock of Gibraltar. Anyway, so swept through Spain, absolutely crushed it, which I guess we're not counting as Western <laughs> civilization. We're only counting... Not like, to Ben, not the, to Ben, they're too tan the middle, Fre- <laughs> middle French kingdom as Western civilization. So that, they did get defeated at the Battle of Tours because they had come all the way from Syria right so they had right. gone through syria down the top of the maghreb through modern day algeria tunisia morocco and up through spain lost their first battle at the battle of tours and were like you know what we're gonna fall back to spain and regroup that's what they did and then what happened right. was there was a lot of infighting within so the caliph in um back in 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 the arabian peninsula had basically a falling out with the emir of spain and they decided essentially to to declare spain as its own kingdom and stop their expansion efforts so it's not like had they tried again they might have been successful against western civilization also love the fact that we just don't talk about like it's really difficult to fight a war away from your home base, <laughs> which, you know, the Christians discovered when they tried to take and hold Jerusalem during the Crusades, exactly. which did not work out well. So, you know, it's not <laughs> yeah. like they came up against the power of Western civilization and instantly fell apart. It's that it's really hard to invade countries, especially when they're hundreds of miles away from your power base. Exactly. But he makes I it, could listen yeah. to Benedict angrily explain <laughs> Spanish history for hours. Uh, Okay. Yeah, it's, uh, there we go. There we go. That's all I'll say on but, the matter. If anyone wants further further information, you can get in touch. Yeah. But if, again, if you didn't know that backstory, the history, he makes it sound like there was one big cataclysmic battle, East versus West, and West triumphed over the Islamic yeah. forces, and that was the end of it. Yeah, well, you the, know, but there's the, so the, much the West more. has traditionally gotten very lucky about stuff falling apart at home in the middle of mass invasions like when the mongols Mm -hmm. came and they conquered hungary and there was nothing between like nobody between hungary and like literally the atlantic ocean could have stopped them except Mm -hmm. the khan died and they had to go home because it's it's a mongol tradition that everyone has to go home when for like the next khan to be sworn in like so it it's literally europe has got very lucky, got lucky. in that the yeah. some of the invading forces like things have fallen apart at home during the invasion and the invasion has had to turn back and it's also it just what, also what, europe just um, didn't matter to most people for a long time because it had no resources <laughs> people are like oh we lost a battle there are just some rocks over there i guess it's not worth it like <laughs> It's also very much what Clint pointed out. It's a very much a bullshit Samuel Huntington sl- clash of civilizations view of East versus West. When we're talking about discrete armies and discrete countries or, or whatever the, the form they took at that time, right? It's nonsense to say that this was a battle of West versus East. But the next paragraph he gets to in this chapter was probably more disturbing to me, where he said, quote, by the 8th century, Christian leaders were crusading against enslavement, mm-hmm. parenthetical, except notably, notably for the enslavement of Muslim war captives. Monasteries were engaging in proto-capitalism as well. Furthermore, the Catholic Church was responsible for learning and teaching. Virtually mm-hmm. all literacy sprang from monasteries. He says all that like it's a good thing. Other and than the, true. the nonsense <laughs> he said about Christians being against enslavement, which uh, see the rest of history <laughs> after that for how well that worked. All that sounds bad to me. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I would say, I mean, you know, I, I studied a lot of medieval texts. And again, it's like th- there is a lot of non-religious stuff in there as well that the monks would just be like, OK, I guess we better copy this. Like there, there are a lot of 
kind of pagan spanish texts and they often get imbued with like this weird like christian lens but like there are histories of alexander the great and stuff that that do come out of monasteries particularly in palenthia and um in france as well around the around those regions like occitan and stuff so i mean th there is some stuff there like that the monasteries did literally like no one else could read at the time so they did preserve mm -hmm. a lot of knowledge there so that's yeah. not necessarily yeah. well, a bad thing is all i'm saying like it's not yeah. just religious teaching but you get this sense that the medieval church, they didn't suppress science or learning or advancement. They, In fact, it advanced because of the church. But that cannot be the case. No. There's no way that's true. No. no. You know, the church. <laughs> Introducing they, they Galileo Galilei. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so he moves on. And what he's going to start turning us into next is where science and democracy comes back because Greek reason was reintroduced mm -hmm. into the And again, West. how did this happen? We, we went over it already, but it's because it got translated into Arabic and back into the European vernacular. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So he spends a, a little bit of time talking about the history of scholasticism um, in the West and, you know, whatever. I bought scholastic books when I was in school as a kid. Uh, <laughs> it's a bad joke. I don't know if, that uh, is a Clint's, bad joke. I don't know if Clint... Uh, I know Clint's a little older than, than the rest of us, but those were the, uh, that's a brand of books they sell to school children. Oh, really? Um, <laughs> yeah. I missed yeah, out Scholastic on books. Scholastic books is the one you ordered out of a catalog. Oh. Um, but, so he talks about how Aristotle's works in the 12th century were rediscovered by the West. That they, he, he mentions, he brings it up, he, does, does, he doesn't yeah. hide it, that they had yeah. been maintained I would say he by the Arab speaking world. A little. <laughs> he, yes, yes, barely a paragraph talking about. It. But he, after he says that that happened, he just has one of those little short sentences we love <laughs> where he just says, Athens was I, back. I just, I, I you gotta have I the, literally wrote. You got to have the pump up music back, start baby. playing after I wrote, that. I, wrote, okay, I changed the period to a comma and wrote baby afterwards. Like that's. <laughs> <laughs> it had to be done. And so he goes through a couple of leaders he claims uh, were, were in this attempt to unify Athens and Jerusalem. Maimonides is one of them. Uh, and then, of course, Thomas Aquinas uh, is the big mm. dog who we're going to spend mm -hmm. a lot of time talking about throughout the rest of this chapter. And he said about these, these philosophers attempting to, to unify the two, quote, Aquinas, like Maimonides and Muslim philosophers like Al-Farabi, concerned himself, therefore, with proofs of God's existence. This was, in and of itself, somewhat revolutionary in the Christian world. Judaism offered no proof of God beyond revelation. God was simply the creator. End of story. Hmm. Which, again... Is that not is true just of Christianity of, also? <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's literally the same. It's, I was going to bring up how it's like what we had in the last chapter, where it's been not understanding where all these religions he's talking about are the yeah. same. That's mm, true. But he does then go on to talk a great deal about Aquinas and Aquinas' attempts to come up with a logical, a logical proof for the existence of a god. Which he did. I mean, he tried to. He had all these proofs of God's existence. And I always wondered when I was studying him in seminary, why did he feel like he needed to have all these? Were, were people like going, I don't think God exists in the 12th century. Oh, let me prove that God exists by using Aristotelian logic, you know. Which you've definitely heard of. <laughs> like, yeah. You've never heard of Aristotle, but he's just been discovered by these <laughs> <laughs> Muslim scholars. I was going to say what's strange is when I was studying my uh, doctoral thesis, I went through the scholastic period because I was studying scholastic preaching, and that was that was actually a thing. So you had guys that took Aquinas's teaching, and then they would make sermons out of it, out of his sort of theological system. And the funny part about it is, as the centuries went on, it, the the whole scholasticism got so arcane, it got more and more and more complex to the point where part of what Luther was reacting against was how incredibly complex and arcane mm. this whole system had become. And he was like, this is meaningless to the average person on the street, as it were. They don't understand any of what you're talking about. This is so ridiculously overblown. You're overthinking everything. you know. So that's kind of the trajectory of what ended up happening with a lot of Aquinas's theology, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. Yeah, no, that's really interesting. Yeah. I hadn't mm. thought about that. Like, but yeah, it's essentially like, listen, peasant, do you understand what Aristotle would say about this? Yeah. Like, I've got twelve <laughs> points here, and it points with subpoints, and so that and that's how the sermons got. They yeah. were they were kind of similar to the expository sermons of today, where you have you know multiple main points with multiple multiple sub 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 points underneath, and by the time you're done, you, you're so your head's exploding, you can't understand any of this, you know. 
And so this was part of Luther's program was to simplify it and explain it to the the common man, as it were, mm. you know, so he was, he was going against what Aquinas, Aquinas started uh, centuries before. Yeah. Yeah. And he, he continues on. He talks about, you know, he goes through a little bit of Aquinas's arguments and how it was a combination of revelation and reason, all that sort of stuff. And then he has to throw in a dig there about the enlightenment. He gets onto the enlightenment, obviously. Which he allegedly and he has to throw loves. in this dig about the enlightenment, which he allegedly loves. And he has to throw in this <laughs> dig where he says, quote, Contrary to the propaganda of postmodern atheist movement, nearly every great scientist up until the age of Darwinism was religious. The scholastic movement produced the earliest roots of the scientific method all the way up through the discovery by Nicholas Copernicus of a heliocentric solar system. Mm. And Benedict, that's where I, I put in Galileo, yeah, anyone? Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's such a pointless thing to say. Like, it, like... I, yes, everyone yeah, was religious in the past. Everyone was religious yeah. in the time when everyone was religious. Like, yeah, everyone. cool, that's a great, like, circular argument you've done there. Cool, like... Sure. And he provides this example of the great success of the scholastic method in this individual who I had never heard of before, Roger Bacon. Oh, you never heard of Bacon? Mm -hmm. He's a great lad. Great lad. I heard of Sir Francis Bacon. I've never heard of Roger Bacon. But, I mean, he wrote about how he talked about optics, alchemy, not a science, and astronomy. And, yeah, everyone was into Uh, astronomy back then. Excuse me, alchemy? thing. never attempted to make gold (laughs) out of lead it to gold? Yeah. Yeah. But but the other the last thing he brought up as part of his uh, CV, which I thought was funny, was quote he even set down the first European formula for gunpowder. So mm. he was good at stealing yeah. from the East, <laughs> a, a tradition of, of of Christianity that has long long persisted. Yep. Yeah, and he ends that subsection with quote. The age of scientific progress didn't begin with the Enlightenment; it began in the monasteries of Europe. I, yeah. Which, if you t- if you take history as progressing, yeah, everything that came comes from what came before it. Sure, I guess well, we can also, go down yeah, that exactly. road. Like, it, the age of scientific progress started when man evolved from amoebas. Like, yes, that it, it's very stupid. Like, <laughs> the, and, and before the monasteries of Europe, it was in the mosques of the Middle East, and before that, it was in mm-hmm. it was in the fortresses of China, the palaces of China. Like, it's such a stupid argument. But to my mind, what separates the Enlightenment from the Scholastic era and what happened in monasteries, etc., is that learning and knowledge and science came out of religion. Mm. and went into its yeah, own it's a secular conscious sphere. break from religion as a- antithetical to scientific progress yep that's what i would say and i i wonder why he's so desperate to make that point that that science and everything else was so uh, preserved in the monasteries and that's where it really started not the enlightenment because i think the reason the enlightenment is so important that was the first time in human history at least in the west where it was it was an attempt to construct a series or a system of knowledge epistemology apart from divine revelation Mm -hmm. based on the scientific method and divine creation apart from divine creation as well yeah yeah. that was a huge break and that was the first time we people you know humanity said actually we can figure this thing out through the laws of mathematics and science and the scientific method apart from just devoting to the bible and reading the book of genesis and we don't have to figure out why God designed the heliocentric universe. We can just say mm-hmm. that that is the thing that it is <laughs> and then figure out how it works. And it does allow yeah. you to th- figure out how things work more. If you're not questioning why a God has done something, then it's not blasphemous yeah. to ask why. Do you know what I mean? Like it's, yeah. And yeah. you can subject it to tests. Exactly. And can't yeah, exactly. exactly. That's the scientific method. And that's the thing. I mean, that's what Carl Sagan argues in The Demon Haunted World, isn't it? Why can't we subject religion to the same scientific method if we did we it would be found wanting mm-hmm. you know it, it's it's fundamentally it's flawed so but we can't ask those same questions yeah and just jumping back real quickly to his his hit against uh you know every scientist up until the age of darwinism mm-hmm. um the reason i i wanted to go back to that for just a moment was throughout this book i've been picking up on benedict's personal predilections <laughs> towards whether he's a, a literalist or a young earth creationist even <laughs> Because we had in a previous chapter, he talked about the biblical flood as though it was literal, right. as though it was an actual thing that happened. And I've been trying to figure, because he's been very cagey. When I, I've researched him and looked up his statements and his speeches and things, he's been very cagey as to what exactly he believes vis-a-vis uh, evolution mm. and the literalism of the Bible or the Torah. And so I think this is another hint where he's dropping some shade on Darwin mm. that he may be 
an anti-evolution fundamentalist. Could be. Yeah, I would also say, just another note, like, Darwin was significantly after the main enlightenment. Like, he's saying, like, oh, no scientific (laughs) progress until Darwin. Like, that's, like, the mid-1800s. Like, Voltaire and and the Enlightenment philosophers were literally, like, 100-plus years before that. Like... Mm -hmm. Yeah, there were plenty of atheists before Darwin. I mean, fucking David Hume and Diderot and, you know, even Spinoza, if you count him, right? There were plenty of atheists before Darwin. And sure, the... Yeah, yeah. Sure, the majority of them probably weren't uh, or probably were religious at that time, but yeah, we understand that as we learned more things, there was less uh, less darkness for religion to hide in, and they, you know, that's where all of the atheists came yeah. from. Well, and there's there's another whole piece of irony to this whole discussion, and that is the Renaissance, because you had guys like the Medici's mm. in in Florence, for example, before the Enlightenment, they were going into monasteries and and finding ancient manuscripts from from Greece and Rome that had been preserved, but the monks weren't reading it. And they were bringing back a lot of the amazing discoveries that they had found in classical, in the classical era. You know, that's really the, that's how the Renaissance got started, which then fed into the Enlightenment. So it was actually bringing back classical learning that had been forgotten and lost for centuries back into the mainstream. So that's, that's another piece of this whole puzzle that has to be, he doesn't even mention that at all. He just whizzes right right past the Renaissance. Yeah, that's true. I hadn't thought about so, that. So, I mean, I, I think we can we can mm-hmm. see where he's taking this argument that he's stretching to make support his, his whole religion's important thing, where obviously because the church had money, they had monasteries, they had people who were devoted to working on manuscripts and maintaining them, obviously a lot of this knowledge was passed down that way throughout the generations. That doesn't support any of the arguments that he thinks flows from that, however, that it was critical, as though, you know, it's the, the counterfactual... Um, historical narrative, right? Mm-hmm. If Christianity didn't exist, there very well may have been another religion or another organization that had taken its place that would have done the same mm-hmm. thing. And so, and the example, one of the examples I go to for that is Anathem by Neil Stevenson, mm. which is basically a, an example of a world he's creative in the novel where it's the scientists who go into monasteries and hold themselves there, mm. right? Who, who sequester themselves from the world and it's the outside world that is religious and holds superstitions and all those sorts of things. I just love that as a counterfactual example. I know it's not realistic in any sort of sense, but I love that concept, right? And it gets to the core of it. The core is not that it was religion that was inside the monasteries that was keeping these things together, is that there was an organization that had a system for preserving all these ancient documents and ancient ideas. I think we got to step back now. We've kind of dealt with the chapter a little bit. Um, What's the thesis of the book itself, which is that, that the West is in decline, and particularly the United States in 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 particular, and the the solution for that is to go back to this Judeo-Christian ethic, and that's why I think he's so desperate to preserve this this argument that it was the Church that was preserving knowledge and and fostering scientific progress and all these wonderful things. That's why we got to go back to a Judeo-Christian worldview, as it were, and that's the solution to the decline of America and the West. So to me, that's that sums up his argument as, as far as the whole book. I don't know what you guys have thought about or talked about his his sort of thesis statement of the book itself. Well, it's strange to me because Ben is Jewish. Mm-hmm. And so him supporting a theocracy of any sort in the United States seems to me to be a scary proposition, mm-hmm. knowing that in general, it would be a Christian theocracy. It would definitely yeah. not be his religion G- yeah. that would be in charge. Yep. So I, I do constantly wonder through reading this book, what exactly is he pushing for? And I hope yep. when we get towards the end, he'll lay out sort of his conclusions as that. Mm-hmm. I haven't read that far no. ahead, but I do wonder what exactly does he think is the end outcome of these ideas he posits, which in general do have to do with bringing religion back as a major force in life. Yeah, specifically the Judeo-Christian religion. Mm-hmm. And that's why it's the same sort of program um, intellectually as a guy like David Barton. He is out to quote-unquote prove that the founding fathers of America intended America to be a Christian nation, and that was their vision, and we need to go back to that to recover what's been lost. It's exactly the same thesis sort of argument as, as as a guy like david barton i think and that's Better that's the thoughts. danger of it yeah no i mean i i also have not uh have not read far ahead but i i, I think you know i share similar 
worries about about the argument mm-hmm. as a whole and i think yeah. uh, hopefully people can can see its flaws um but yeah, yeah. yeah. i think p- people like barton are very clear that it's christian theology yeah. it's a christian the- theocracy that they're aiming for ben i think because he knows his aud- audience is largely not jewish um and largely evangelical christians has to be more cagey because he doesn't want to write down in a book that we need a christian theocracy yeah. But he knows that that's what his audience wants. But I think the the key phrase that gives the whole game away is the phrase Judeo-Christian. Yeah. And the reason he inserts the word Judeo is the same reason. I mean, David Barton will say Judeo-Christian. America was founded on Judeo-Christian principles. It's it's just a piece of red meat tossed to that Christian Zionist part of the puzzle. So And it's also to the Jewish population as well. They're saying, well, uh, if push came to shove, any any Christian would a real evangelical would have to admit that a Jew is not going to heaven unless they accept Jesus as their Messiah. So really, this whole Judeo piece is bullshit. It's just a piece of red meat. So they don't really mean that they're they're equal with Christians. You know, it's just saying, well, uh, what we believe is somehow like America's laws were founded on the Old Testament laws or the Ten Commandments, and that's the Judeo part of the Judeo Christian, which I I see that in Shapiro's. argument as well and i think it comes back to in large part this what i always call the political religion of the republican party which is a form of evangelical christianity Mm -hmm. they very much have a political religion which has changed the way that evangelicals look at judaism and look at you know this the state of israel which they think is judaism yeah right that's the only way they can comprehend it yeah. I think it all comes back to that, and he knows that's his audience, and he yeah. knows he has to throw in that red meat. You're talking about Christian Zionism. I mean, the the support for Israel in in evangelicals evangelicals in America, I man, that's huge. They are absolutely, and that's why they were so happy when Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem because mm-hmm. they saw it as a fulfillment of prophecy by saying, "No, Jerusalem is the capital of Israel." Period, and that excludes all Palestinians, all Arabs. Jews are in charge of Jerusalem, and they were ecstatic. The evangelicals, the same audience I think Shapiro is trying to appeal to with his book. Yep. Well, with that all done, we got through the whole chapter. I will read the final paragraph, as I am always wont to do, which is, quote, While the end of the Middle Ages provided yet another major stone in the foundation of Western civilization, then those foundations were not yet complete. They would, that was a terrible sentence. I just realized <laughs> yeah, that not was great. nonsense. What's up with that then there? Ugh. They would not be complete without learning two more critical lessons. The dangers of communal power and the human capacity for material betterment. End of chapter four of The Right Side of History. Clint, we can't thank you enough for sticking around and doing this book with us. You are the first guest we've had who has not started it off with a fuck you for making me read this book. So if you'd like to end it with that now, you can. No, no. I actually did enjoy uh, reading it and picking it apart and doing some research on it. So, yeah, I'm, I love academic pursuits anyway. So it was just I, I traded it as another research project, Good basically. Man. Good man. Well, it was a lot of fun having you on. If the listeners want more of you, where can they find you? Okay, they can find me on Twitter at MindShift2018. You can look up my MindShift podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, you know, everywhere you get your podcasts. Um, you can go on Facebook and find me, the MindShift Podcast Facebook page. I mean, I'm all over social media, so there's ways to get a hold of me. Excellent, and I highly recommend it. I love your most recent show about Amy Coney Barrett. Fantastic oh, stuff. Man. We're all we're, That's all we can all think about right now. Absolutely. So, uh, it's always great to be timely and covering those sorts of things, which we don't have the benefit of because we're stuck with these stupid <laughs> books. <laughs> Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. Remember, if you just can't get enough of us, you can go over to patreon.com forward slash NYGBC and become a patron for as little as $2 an episode for patron-only episodes, shout-outs on the show, drawings to win our copies of the books we read, and more. I want to give a special shout-out this week to our newest patron, who I know I gave on the last show, but it wasn't, a, it wasn't a new show, so I wanted to give it on this one, our newest patron, Savi Aquino. Savi, thank you so much for joining as a patron. In addition, we have to thank our other patrons, Glaurung the Deceiver, Danielle, Terrified, terrified Will Be Pecked to Death by Lame Ducks, Becky Scott Fairley, that's a, that's a winner, that's a winner, uh, Becky Scott Fairley, Stephen and Cindy Dimmick, A.J. Brantley, Tyro Tucanon, Skeptical Seventh, and Andrew Jenko. Thank you all, as always, for being our patrons. That's it for this week's show. Till next time, I am the law. Goodbye. Goodbye.
The Not Your Grandmother's Book Club podcast is a production of Kevin and Benedict Productions. Copyright 2020, all rights reserved. Music for this podcast is by Silverman Sound Studios. Find out more at silvermansound.com.